Well, welcome to uh, kicking off a new season for us. This is the beginning of the, I guess, fall semester. School's back in session. Uh, just everybody seems like they're through with vacations and everyone's back. There's just a lot of energy around the campus. And it's really good to see everybody here, those of you online. I'm excited to get into this series. Uh, and I'll tell you a little bit more about it in a second. But let me open with prayer for us. Father, thank you for this privilege we have to gather and to study your word and to take it into our minds and into our hearts and may it find its way out through our hands. May we put these things into practice. I do pray for all the anxieties and fears, for the health concerns of everyone in the sound of my voice. Lord, you know our needs so intimately and I pray that your presence would be so close to those who need you. I thank you, Father, for how gracious you are to us. And I thank you that we can trust you with the future, which you see so much more clearly than we. In Christ's name, amen. Well, you probably know that you can text questions in during class presentation to the number on the screen right now. It's also on your handout. Those of you online, you should have an online handout there. So if you wanna text questions into that number, please do. We're happy to answer as many questions as we can. Well, let me start with a, a little bit of a monologue before we jump into this series. And I want to tell you why are we talking about this particular book of the Bible and why does it have the title Leadership for Modern Times? If you look at the polls in America, you would see that most Americans think we need new leaders. If you look at the polls around the world, you will see the same thing. So I'm not, I'm not making a partisan statement here. The polls in the European countries are, you are, you're starting to see changes in government leaders. There's a mood amongst people that this world with its complexity, its problems, and the challenges that we have, that we need new leaders. I'm gonna to contend to you that it goes beyond getting new leaders, that we need a new kind of leader for the modern world. And there are a lot of people that are starting to come to that realization as well, is when you look around and you say, do we want a new version of what we've had and think that that's gonna solve some of the problems of the complexity that we have in the world today. And many people are starting to realize this same thing. We actually need a new kind of leader. So I spent 30 years in a business that is very high leadership orientation and was very fortunate to have a lot of really good leadership training, uh, read a lot of leadership books over that period of time, the fads that came, the fads that went, certain principles that would be distilled out of that. And I have personally found one of the best ways to look at leadership is to combine it with a look at history as well. Meaning look at how leaders have successfully navigated difficult times in history. And the best way to do that is biographies. And I would urge you to, uh, of all the books that you may read, and leaders are definitely readers, is mix in there some biographies of leaders in the past, good leaders, bad leaders, and how they handled the times in which they found themselves. Here's something I learned from reading biographies of almost every major figure, certainly in the world today, and in general. Uh, titans of industry, 
political leaders, cultural leaders, the Gandhis of the world, the Mother Teresas of the world, biographies of everyone that you would consider to be a very successful leader. And one of the key things that kept appearing to me is that we understand leaders to be people that get big results. If you just distill down the books that are written and who they're written about and why they're written about those people is because they're people who've gotten big results. And we consider good leaders to be people who get big or important or impressive results. So you see biographies on usually presidents, prime ministers, etc. You see biographies on titans of industry, the Phil Knights of Nike, or the Steve Jobs of Apple, or the other Silicon Valley tech leaders. You tend to see these biographies to hold these people up as leaders because of what they have achieved. Here's the problem that the world is realizing. By that standard, then the Mao Zedongs, the Joseph Stalins, the Adolf Hitlers, the Xi Jinpings, the Vladimir Putins of the world are great leaders. By the standard of achieving big results and changing the shape of the world, those people are great leaders as well. Well, that's morally unpalatable to us, isn't it? I mean, you may be able to go down there and say, you know, lead like Steve Jobs, but you're probably not gonna find a book at Barnes and Nobles that says, lead like Papa Joe Stalin. No, because he killed 20 million people, right? And so the world is starting to realize, I know this sounds a little simplistic, but think with me on this. The world is starting to realize, wait a minute, maybe our standard for what good leadership is is wrong. And as the world has started to second guess its traditional leaders, the Steve Jobs and the Phil Knights and the other tech industries, a little bit of the polish has come off of them when you realize, and things come to light, how many people in third world countries worked at below living wages to make that possible. You look at the Thomas Jeffersons and the George Washingtons of the world, and we now want to redefine whether or not they were actually good people or good leaders as well. My point to you is not to be uh, making a particular case. I'm simply saying the world has realized that our standard of what a good leader is has been not particularly good standard. It's not enough to get big results to be a good leader. Does that make sense? So. Being a fan of biographies, being a fan of learning about good leadership from looking at how people have navigated complex problems in the world in history, I would like for us to approach the book of Nehemiah in the Bible is a leadership biography. That's what this book actually is. It is the real story of a real individual in real time history and it's not just the story. In fact, it's not even primarily the story of what he achieved, although that is hugely significant for the people of Israel in history. The essence of this is not what this leader did, but what kind of leader he was. And that's the reasoning that led to this topic and this title. We need a new 
kind of leader for unprecedentedly difficult times. And the place that you find that is to look back to other unprecedentedly difficult times and find out what kind of leader was successful. And that is the book of Nehemiah. Well, you know, it's near and dear to my heart that if you're gonna study a biography of a person, we need to know who they were, when they were, and where they were. And so I wanna take you back to the time of Nehemiah so you understand the, the unique difficulties of that world at that time. This is a fascinating period of history. And this time period, we're gonna be focused on, we're really not gonna be focused on the Persian Empire, but this is the way the world looked at the time of Nehemiah. And I'll show you a timeline in just a second. But this is in green, this whole area goes, look, notice it goes all the way down to Egypt. Uh, the only reason it doesn't go further into Arabia is there's nothing there but desert and they hadn't figured out they needed oil yet. And so they literally conquered all the way to India, all the way over here, didn't conquer Greece, but conquered almost everything else. Modern day Turkey, Iraq and Iran, here's Babylon. And so this Persian empire is a turning point that opened a door for something big to happen in history. And as usual, it took a leader who was poised to take advantage of that. The key to Nehemiah, again, is not just what he accomplished, but it's the kind of leader that he was. And I think that we in this room, if we are that kind of leader, we can help navigate our people through this particularly difficult time. So the time period here is uh, the Persians, uh, think Persians as Iran. Iran is, Iranians and, and Iraqi people are different ethnicities. So Iranians are Persians, speak different languages. This is Iraq. And so the Babylonian empire, the Babylon would, had conquered most of the known world. And the Babylonian empire fell. It was conquered by the Persian empire. They actually conquered the city of Babylon in 539 BC. And you can read a firsthand account of that in the book of Daniel in the Bible. Daniel chapter seven describes that actual event in 539 BC. So let's see where we are in, this is where we are in geography and we're gonna talk about what's happening back here in Jerusalem. So here's our timeline. In 586 BC, Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, destroyed Jerusalem. He destroyed the temple that Solomon had built 300 years earlier. Temple stood for 300 years of Solomon and he destroyed it. I mean, literally took, tore it down completely. And he took the Israelites and deported most of them to modern day Iraq and scattered them around through the kingdom. And so the Israelites, the people of Israel, really ceased to exist as a nation and they ceased to exist as a cohesive people. They were scattered all over the place. Well, if you read the prophets of Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel, they said this was going to happen, that this actually isn't Babylon's decision to do this. This is God working through history to work with his people. And so he said, you're going to be scattered around to the four winds, and sure enough, it happened. But
But he says, but I will bring you back to this land. And so in 539 BC, as I mentioned, Daniel chapter seven, the Persian King Cyrus conquered the Babylonians and consequently quickly spread and conquered all of their territory as well. Well, the Persians, it turns out to be a very good thing for the Israelites because the Babylonians' view of occupying territory was take people and scatter them. It's really hard to rebel when you aren't even living in the land you wanna rebel for, right? Persians had a different point of view. They were kind of live and let live. You pay your taxes, you don't cause any problems, and I really don't care what you do. And so they said, Cyrus comes to the, to the throne and he immediately issues an edict that says, all you Jews, you wanna go back and live in Jerusalem, you are welcome to go. And so there began to be waves of Israelites going back to the promised land. And there were several waves of them, but our story, basically spans this time period, from 538 when he said you guys can go back until 445, and there are several Old Testament books about this period. And Ezra and Nehemiah, the prophet Haggai, the prophet Zechariah, the prophet Malachi, the writer of First and Second Chronicles is written in this time frame as well. And so you get a lot of Old Testament books written about this period. The Persian kings during this period are kind of interesting because you know them from history. And this is my point to you is these are real people in real times. And so the king you're probably most familiar with is Xerxes and that's because he shows up in a movie. He ruled from 485 to 465. So this is, he's king of Persia and the Jews are kind of migrating back but he's busy fighting the Greeks. So he marries Esther. So when you read the book of Esther in the Old Testament, this guy's her husband. So Xerxes, he's also the guy in the movie 300. All right, so he's the one that tried to conquer Greece and you get the 300 Spartans and, uh, you know, and, and obviously they were successful in effectively stopping him from conquering Greece. And from that time, the power of the Persians begins to go down. Well, his son ruled right after him from 464 to 424. His name was Artaxerxes, probably a family name. But Artaxerxes is the king during the time of Nehemiah. He is historically speaking, when you read the book of Nehemiah, they don't name the king, it's this guy. It's Artaxerxes, the son of Xerxes, and the same guy who invaded Greece or tried to and failed. And so Artaxerxes is the one who features in our story. And he is going to do a number of things that, that are very important in this story. But Nehemiah is a servant of King Artaxerxes himself. Artaxerxes uh, was very powerful king. And before we jump into the text, I need you to understand the way this works. This is absolute power. There are no checks there are no balances on Artaxerxes' power at all. He is the Pharaoh of Egypt. He is the king of the Persian Empire. He literally controls everything that he surveys. If he snapped his fingers and said, kill that guy, they would kill that guy, and no one thinks twice about it. I mean, there's no check whatsoever on his power. I know that in America, 
we grow up with the idea that, well, wait a minute, no one has absolute power. Well, we still think that. No one has absolute power, but in those days, he did have absolute power. You just really need to wrap your head around that. It, anybody at any time. Also very paranoid because the only way, if you've got absolute power, the only way to knock off a king, the only way to take it over is to kill him somehow, right? And so kings tended to kill a lot of people just on general principles to make it so that like, hey, if you're thinking about killing me, don't, because I kill people at random. I'm not making this up. This is how you stayed in power in those days. So Artaxerxes, powerful guy, dangerous guy. That's the setting for our story. The Jews that are left in Jerusalem are not doing very well at all. Nehemiah is a Jew and his family, a couple of generations before, undoubtedly had been conquered and resettled in this area of Persia under the Babylonian empire in that time period. And the Babylonians get conquered, Persians come in and he gets a job with the Persians. He is a Jew who's been scattered. And so the story begins like this. The time is 444 BC. The words of Nehemiah, son of Hakaliah, in the month of Kislev in the 20th year. What is he talking about there? The month of Kislev is in the fall. That's a Jewish calendar. And in the 20th year, the 20th year of what? The 20th year of the reign of the king. This is actually very useful because you can actually date this. While I was in the citadel of Susa, one of the palaces in the capital, Hanani, one of my brothers, came from Judah. Judah is where Jerusalem is. So he's come all the way to Iraq. And I questioned them about the Jewish remnant that survived the exile and also about Jerusalem. He's saying, hey, how are our people that were left in the land, how are they faring in uh, Jerusalem? And they said to me, those who survived the exile and have, remember, people are going back slowly to the land of Judah, are back in the province and are in great trouble and disgrace. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down. Babylonians did that. 70 years earlier, and its gates have been burned with fire. When I heard these things, I sat down and wept. For some days I mourned and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. And so this, in the very first few verses, you get an interesting insight into Nehemiah. You don't know anything about his leadership ability at this point. You don't know anything about what he's done. He hasn't even formulated a plan to do anything great, but you know one really important thing about him is there is something about which he is very passionate. I mean, think to yourself, what is there at work that could happen that you said, for some days I mourned and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven? Now I'm being a little facetious, but my point is this, and this is the first lesson of leadership in terms of the character of a leader, the kind of a leader. Leadership without passion is useless. At worst, it's manipulative, and at best, it's just management. Management's important, but it's not the same as leadership. Leadership without passion is lifeless. And consequently, if you think about, it's not so much what the leader does, it's what kind of a leader they are. One, the first key ingredient is you must be passionate about what you're leading. I'm not telling you that you need to be passionate about everything you do in life. 
Not saying you need to go to your job and you should be passionate about every report that you have to fill out. That's not my point. My point is though, if you're going to be a leader, you need to align that with passion. Suppose he had gotten this news and he said, gosh, that's just too bad. I'm really sorry to hear that. I doubt we're gonna make it as a people, but fortunately I've got a good job and the kids are doing well in school and gosh, it just makes me sad. I'll, I'll put that on my prayer list, right? Okay, that's not a lot of passion, is it? The rest of this story probably doesn't happen. And that's the first point I wanna make is leadership requires passion. So here's Jerusalem. Here's what's happening at that time. By the way, I wanna stop here and just make a side comment about the last series we had. Do you remember we talked about modern Israel? In modern Israel, this area right here, all of this, and it goes further north, is the West Bank today, all right? That's a neutral term. West Bank is just a neutral term. If you're Palestinian, it's occupied Palestine. If you're a Jew, it's Judea and Samaria. And I wanted to tell you why Jews will call the West Bank Judea and Samaria, because that's what it was called in 400 BC. It's what it was called in the time of Jesus, and it's what it's been called a long time. Okay, that really has nothing to do with this lesson, but just to connect it up, why do Jews today call the West Bank Judea and Samaria? Because they say, we've been in this land longer than you can imagine. So, but back in Babylon, or in uh, Jerusalem, you basically have a city that the walls have been torn down, the temple's been destroyed, the Babylonians were like, we're gonna make an example of you, and, and these people are never gonna come back here, this nation will never be rebuilt again. Well, when they came back, after Cyrus in 538 said, you can start going back, the first thing they did was they built a temple. Because the Jewish people are not bound just by ethnicity, although they are of a common ethnicity. They are not bound just by culture, although they have a lot of cultural elements in common. They are bound primarily by their identity in God, as God's chosen people, the people of the book, the people of Torah, the people that uh, obey the commandments of God. And so the first thing they built when they went back is a temple. This is, a, is a, obviously an artist's rendition of what the temple probably looked like at the time of Nehemiah. So this is in the 400s BC. This is a rendition of what the temple of Solomon looked like in 900 BC, just based on the description in the biblical text. I want you to notice how nice this is. Uh, it's gold, it's huge, it's just unbelievably beautiful, magnificent temple. This picture up here, I actually did not know about this until this week. I can't believe I did not know about this. That building is a modern building in Sao Paulo, Brazil, that a, a Brazilian billionaire spent $300 million building this building to be an exact replica of Solomon's temple. Isn't that interesting? Again, it has nothing to do with this lesson or Nehemiah's leadership capabilities, but I'm pretty impressed with that. I mean, if you're gonna spend 300 million on a building, what would make you build it as a replica of Solomon's temple? But he did. So, 
If you wanna go to Brazil, feel free to tour that, come back, bring pictures, let us know what it looks like inside. But in all seriousness, notice how pathetic the little temple that they built when they came back is compared to the glory before. It's said that people that remembered what Solomon's temple looked like wept when they saw this. Nevertheless, the important thing is they have zeal, they have passion, and their identity is focused on their worship of God. And so the first thing they build is the temple. This temple was completed in 515 BC. This temple is gonna get a major, major overhaul in New Testament times by Herod the Great. But until that time, this is what it looked like. So they go back, they build the temple, but things are not good. So when I heard these things, Nehemiah said, I sat down and I wept. For some days I mourned and I fasted and I prayed before the God of heaven. And then I said, O Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps his covenant of love with those who love him and obey his commands, let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer your servant is praying before you day and night for your people of Israel. I confess the sins that we Israelites, including myself and my family, have committed against you. We have acted wickedly toward you. We have not obeyed the commands, decrees, and laws you gave your servant Moses. Remember the instruction you gave your servant Moses, saying, if you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the nations. And that's what happened in 586 BC. But if you return to me and obey my commands, then even if your exiled people are at the farthest horizon, I will gather them from there and bring them to the place I have chosen as a dwelling for my name. Hence Cyrus, the Persian king, who allows them to go back and said, they are your servants and your people whom you redeemed by your great strength and your mighty hand. O Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of this your servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight in revering your name. Give your servant success today by granting him favor in the presence of this man. I was cupbearer to the king. Well, I wanna stop there and I wanna go in reverse order. I wanna talk about what does this tell us about Nehemiah as a leader? Less about what he did, more about what kind of leader he is. Well, the first thing is, be interesting to know what does this mean? He tells you his job. This is almost everything you know about Nehemiah, but actually because of archeology, span you know a lot about Nehemiah's job based on this. Here are some uh, carvings from this era. This is the Babylonian and Assyrian, and uh, yeah, those guys aren't Persians. But this is from the Babylonian Assyrian era, and these are pictures of cupbearers with the king. And the thing about a cupbearer is the cupbearer is with the king a lot. And so you might think, well, at, at, at its base, he's just the guy that gives the king uh, his wine, that pours his wine. Way, way, way more than that. So stop and think about the logic of this and you'll understand why this is a big deal. This is the most trusted position, maybe the second most trusted position. This is a hugely trusted position. So if you wanna get rid of the king, what is the best way to get rid of the king? Well, probably not a direct assault because he's got a bodyguard. Hard to get in his presence. I mean, if you actually wanna kill the king, you know, it's, it's gonna be difficult to actually kill the king. Poison the king. I mean, for centuries, this has been the preferred method to assassinate kings. 
Actually, 21st century, Russians are doing a pretty good job assassinating people with this. I say that in all seriousness. This is not new. Do you understand what I'm saying? You can read this in the news today. Well, the best way would be to poison the king, which means you need to bribe somebody who's in the kitchen or bribe somebody who's gonna take him the wine and we're gonna poison the wine. So kings know this and so what do they do? Your cupbearer is the person who is responsible for the loyalty of the household staff. This is the person that tastes the food, that sips the wine, that watches every piece of food from the time it comes in until the time it's on the king's table. This is an extremely trusted position. As a matter of fact, this position of cupbearer comes down to us through history, through old Latin words and through old French words, and our word for cupbearer is butler. And so what you think of as a butler doing in a household, right, running the whole staff and the household, you know, think Downton Abbey, that kind of a deal, right, that's this job on steroids. That's this job and somebody's always trying to kill your boss, right? So this is an extremely influential position. As a matter of fact, Artaxerxes' dad was killed not by poisoning, he was killed by the other most trusted position, the leader of his bodyguard killed him. So the guy who's got your bodyguard and the guy who's got your food, those are the two most important guys in the kingdom. Nehemiah is this person. Now he's not in this position just because of his pedigree. I mean, he's a Jew, he's not even a native Persian. He's in this position because he's demonstrated capability and he's trusted by the king. So that's what a cupbearer is. The second thing I wanna talk about is this. What is the first thing that Nehemiah does? He prays. He prays. Now, does he have some assets here? I mean, if you're a leader and you are passionate about the plight of your people and you have some capabilities, well, he does. He obviously knows how to manage things. He's in charge of the, the whole palace. He's obviously got a position that's kind of high up. I mean, probably he knows the cabinet members. He knows the VP. You know, he knows the king. He literally gets to be in the king's presence. So he's got a lot of assets. And you might think, and I think most leaders would say, wow, I've got a passion, I've got a problem, time for me to take all of my assets and start to apply them and let's make a plan. That's not what he does first. What he does first is he prays. And when he prays, he actually commits this to God. And this is what I mean by a new kind of leader. If you achieve things by yourself, and this is true for you and me as much as it's true for CEOs of business or Nehemiah himself, what we achieve by ourselves will never be bigger than ourselves and will never last for very long. I would challenge you to think about who you can think of that was such a great leader and such a momentous figure other than Jesus Christ that he changed the world and if you think about it, you can probably think of a people that say, well, that person changed the world, that person changed the world, that person changed the world. Well, if you wanna go back about a thousand years, you can find people that did bigger things than they did, seriously. And you don't even know their names. 
So my point is, anything that we do in our own power and ours alone will never be bigger than we are and will never last very long. And that's the reality of it. I, when I started in business, I will just tell you that the books about the business leaders that were admired and the systems you needed to do, I could tell you them today, I'll bet you don't even remember them. That's how big deal of leaders they were. At the time, they were, you know, literally, the Amazons of the world and that kind of thing. You don't even remember them. In fact, some of their companies aren't even here today. So my point to you is, is the kind of leader that Nehemiah is, is the one that turns to God. Tower of Babel in the Bible, by the way, is one of the best examples of something that human leaders did by themselves. You remember the story of the Tower of Babel, and this is where humanity comes together and says, man, we've got technology. We are going to build a tower, and it's going to represent how awesome we are because we actually don't need gods anymore. We're pretty godlike ourselves with our control of technology. We've proliferated. We are really, really good. And so they build this Tower of Babel. And if you want to go with me, that is the story of humanity. It just changes at different times. We still are building Towers of Babel. Like, look at us. We're so awesome. We can cure diseases. We can do this. We can do that. Well, we can't stop climate change, but we can do a bunch of other stuff, right? In other words, we still think that. And here's the interesting thing in the biblical text. So they start to build this tower that will go to heaven, they said. And the text says this, God heard the commotion and God came down to have a look at their big old tower. In other words, the things that we do on our own will never be bigger than we ourselves are. So prayer first. Nehemiah begins with prayer. And this is the first rule of leadership. And this is where I want to focus a little bit of time is discussing this. So the first, kind, the first thing you learn about Nehemiah as a leader, before you ever get into anything that he did, is you realize that he committed what he was doing to God. Nehemiah has a lot of assets and maybe he could pull this off. Maybe he could get the king to do something for his people. Maybe he could use his position and his abilities to do it. But Nehemiah realized that the ability for him to do this is nothing compared to the ability of God to do this. And I wanna apply this in our lives as well. We'll go back to Nehemiah and we'll talk more about what he actually did. But I would like us to take this lesson and early in the verses, what kind of leader was Nehemiah? Nehemiah was someone who had passion, but before he began to prepare, he prayed and he committed what his endeavor was to God. Now let's stop and think about that for a minute. How does that apply to you and me? I don't know about you, but my normal thing was, I will go ahead and do all the things that I can do, and if I hit something that's particularly hard, I'll ask God for help, all right? And so am I committing this to God? No, not really. I'm just gonna use God as a contractor. You know, basically, I've got him on contract to come in and smite people when I need them smitten. Right, or I need him to come in and handle the situation. And honestly, don't we live a lot of our lives that way? Like I'm in charge of this, but I've got this contractor. It's sort of like, well, plumbing went out, call the plumber. Big problem I can't handle, call God. You know, it's, he's kind of an afterthought, if you will. That's not the way Nehemiah approaches this problem. And I think there's a really important lesson there to us. I have a friend in business who told me the story of his business. 
This is really interesting what happened to him, and his testimony is a powerful testimony. But he says he realized at one point that he was not making a success of this business. It was doing pretty well, but it was destroying him. And so he decided, and this is an amazing story, and I should have him in here to tell you this sometime because it literally is this lesson. He said, I just prayed, and I said, God, from now on, this is your business. This is not my business, and you get to run it. And I did a couple of things. Number one, he began to run the business a little differently because he realized, it isn't my business, this is God's business, and I'm gonna run it the way I think God wants it run. Well, what does that mean? Did he still make a profit? Oh, well, he got far more profitable. But he did some things differently. For example, God's interested in employees in a business. This business is now one of the best businesses to invest in their employees and take care of their employees. God wants to do things in an ethical way. God's got plenty of money. So it's not like a few extra cents per share is what God's interested in. He's interested in doing it in a particular way. God likes a particular kind of leader. God's not worried about the results because he can get those without us. That's just the truth of it. And so he turned it over. He began to run the business a little differently because he kept thinking instead of what would I do, he kept thinking, wonder how God wants his business run. Turns out that's not as hard a decision to make as you might think. He's got the Bible, he's got a lot of pretty good ideas about how God might like to run a business. The second thing he said happened was he realized that it was like a load had been lifted off his shoulders. It's no longer all on him. If this business fails, then God just has a bankrupt business. I'm sorry, God, that's your problem. You ran this thing, right? In other words, he really literally in his mind, he said, you know what, if this business goes bankrupt, well, that'd be God. And if this business does great, that'll be God. And I'm gonna be a good steward and do my best at this. But at the end of the day, God can do with this business what he wants. Can you imagine the peace, if you really believe that? Can you imagine the peace you would have? And he does, and he did. And that's exactly what happened. Now, you say, yes, but I'm not the CEO of a business. I'm not running that kind of thing. But you know what, you are a leader. This, I'm using business examples just because that's what we do in our culture. And honestly, we need to get out of that mindset that first of all, the mindset that good leaders are people that accomplish big things. And secondly, that the only big things to be accomplished have to do with money and fame and fortune and success. If you see anything in our culture today, it should tell you that that's a lie. That pursuing, that the great things to pursue are money, fame, power, fortune, success, more, 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 while those things have good things that come from them, if that's what your focus is, you're gonna be a mess, and we are. And again, I'm not being cynical, I'm just telling you, you ask Americans and 80 some percent say, this is not what we signed up for. And that's not a commentary on any particular administration, that's a commentary on, in my view, the, the wrong kind of leadership. We're thinking about the wrong kinds of things. Every one of you is a leader. I mean, fundamentally, at the very basic, you lead yourself. But each of you leads more than you think. Here's something that if you ask me, could, would, do we need more really good CEO leaders in America? Or do we need more good CEO moms in America? I would definitely take CEO moms. You know why? Plenty of CEO business leaders out there. Uh, seriously, dime a dozen. People waiting in line to take that job. How many people do you see waiting in line to take the job of CEO mom? Fewer and fewer in this culture, right? 
So you get my point. My point is leading your family, leading the people you care about in your small group, leading your coworkers with your attitude and your encouragement. Every one of us is a leader. And as long as we think about leadership as I need to accomplish big important things, we're not gonna make the world much of a better place because we don't need more leaders. We need people that are passionate and people that will commit their endeavor to God. Let me go back to the family because this is a more important. It's more likely that this country will fall on hard times because families are weak than because businesses are weak. Easily, easily the case. I mean, I think that's becoming more and more apparent to people. So let's just talk about your family. The idea of being a leader to your family and saying this matters, this is something I'm passionate about, and then say this is something I'm going to commit to God. And that's the step that we don't always take. We'll say, God, I want you to come in and help my family. I'll pray for my family, etc." But when have we really knelt down and we have prayed the prayer that Nehemiah prayed and we said, God, this is actually your family. This spouse that you have given me is not mine. I'm here to steward this. I'm here to encourage her. I'm here to build him up. That's why the Bible says what it says about marriage. Husbands, love your wives. Wives, respect your husbands. That's not possession, that's stewardship. Your children, God, these children mean so much to me, but they mean even more to you. As hard as that is to believe, and my job is not to get self-satisfaction from these little rugrats. My job is to mold them into men and women of God. And I will steward this family. This is your family. You take charge of where this family's going and what's gonna happen to this family. That's a different way of thinking about leadership, isn't it? And this is Nehemiah's first great step and everything after it fails if you don't invite God to take this over. Does this work in your business? Yeah, it really does. You can say about your job, God, this is gonna be your endeavor. And so when I go to work, I'm gonna be a good employee. Why? Because God said, work hard. Work as though you work for the Lord. Bring honor to his name because you're a good worker. Then I'm gonna be a good worker. I'm gonna to go to this job and am I really interested, my top interest in making money? God says, I'll provide for your needs. You'll make enough money. But actually, I want you to pay a little more attention to these people around here because you think you're here to do a job. I think you're here to affect these people around you. Do you understand how it shifts your perspective very much when you think about as a leader, God is more interested in the quality of the person I am than the nature of the endeavor. This will also help you a lot with the idea of what does God want me to do with my life? What job does God want me to have? And people sincerely wrestle with this a lot. Am I in the right industry? You know, am I doing this? Is this the right job? Should I be doing another job? What does God want me to do? And I'm so grateful that people ask themselves that question. That's a huge step. That says, I want to be God's woman. I want to be God's man. But that question becomes kind of agonizing until you realize God is not as concerned about the job that you do, is really concerned about the you that's doing the job. In other words, you are gonna be in a position of leadership. God will bring you in a position of influence and leadership. 
one, one way or another, and he is going to do it based on the kind of leader you are. Nehemiah is an unlikely person, believe it or not, to do what he's doing. I mean, what ends up happening with Nehemiah? I'm not saying it's Forrest Gump. I'm just saying, you look at this and you go, that guy, no way that guy can do that. And I would argue that that's what we want said about us in almost all the endeavors that we're doing. Not because we're not capable, that's not my point. My point is simply like, whoa, that, that guy should not have been able to do that. And you go, you're right, I couldn't do it. God did this because this is God's business that I'm about. This is God's family, this is God's work, this is God's money. I'm the steward and that's why I'm at peace because God is gonna navigate this family. God's gonna navigate this job. God's gonna do what he wants. It's not always gonna be roses and, and I know that, but I just know that I'm safe and secure in the fact that God's gonna navigate this. I'm in college. What am I gonna do when I get out of college? I mean, I don't know. That's okay, nobody knows. And well, engineers know. Okay, engineers are those people that go into college saying, I'm gonna be an engineer. They come out of college and they become engineers. All the rest of us go into college and study something and we get out and your best strategy, this is my opinion, your best strategy, pray, because you're gonna fall into something and it'd be better if God threw you in, okay, so to something else. So, but my point is, is simply that, whatever it is, and the key thing to me about Nehemiah is that he commits it to God. If you don't learn anything else about this and you think, well, that's not very impressive, I wanna learn some leadership techniques, you will. We're gonna talk about what he does. But all of that is to no avail whatsoever. He's just another leader, if that's all you get out of this. You're just gonna get some leadership techniques. And I'll just tell you, having been in a business 30 years, leadership techniques come and leadership techniques go. And you can get great results and be a nice person and you can get great results and you can be Joseph Stalin. And that is not how you wanna spend your life. That's not worth devoting your life to. You know what's devo worth devoting your life to? Something about which you're passionate that you've said, God, I would love to go on an adventure with you in this life, in this family, in this job, in this life. Seriously, I want you to think hard about this because there's nothing stopping you from flipping that switch in your head and saying, yeah, I think that's exactly what I'm gonna do. God, I am so sick of managing this stuff. And God's like, I'm so sick of watching you. You know, it's like, you gotta be kidding me. Look what you're doing with this, you know. In all seriousness, there's nothing stopping us from devoting our families, our endeavors. Maybe you're retired, you say, well, I don't have a business. My kids are off most of the time, unless they need money or something. But, you know, my kids are gone, so what? It's like, are you kidding? You've got all this experience. God didn't invest decades to get you where you are now to do nothing with you. You just need to turn to God and say, hey, what's the next adventure? What do you want me to do? Open a door, I'm here, I'll walk through it. I'm your man, I'm your woman. We've done wonderful things together, show me. Where do I go serve? Where do I go lead? What do you want me to do? And begin another adventure. There's nothing that stops us from doing that except the mindset in our culture is if you wanna be a leader, this is the framework you have to fit. 
Nehemiah doesn't fit any of that framework. Nehemiah says, you know what? I think I'm a sinner. I think we got ourselves into this mess and I think you're the only one that can get us out of this mess. So God, my first step is to pray and say, would you come help me? Make sense? That's, that's exactly what we need to do, whether it's your family, whether it's your business, whether it's your career in, in academia, whether it's your studies, whether you're a high school student, makes no difference. I really want you to think differently about this. Every endeavor you're involved in can be God's endeavor. And that's the first quality of a different kind of leader. So what do you do after you pray? Well, we have time for me to tell you the second step that Nehemiah does, but I'm not gonna tell you that step. And you know why? Because you won't do this first step if I tell you the second step. So you have one week to commit every endeavor you're doing to God. And then I'll tell you what you do next. But you gotta commit your endeavors to God first, or the rest of this is just leadership hacks. It's just leadership skills. And they'll come and they'll go. The most important thing you can do is have a conversation with God tonight and say, you know what? What I'm involved in is now yours. And you tell yourself that every day and you just walk, watch your stress level will go down so much knowing, actually, this is not all on me. I gave that to God. I signed the papers and he owns it. And so I'm the steward here. That will radically change the approach to your life. It will actually make you a much better leader. And so one week from tonight, when you come back and all of you are smiling, like, I don't have a business anymore. I don't have a family of mine anymore. God's got it all. I'm just the caretaker of the trust. You're gonna be so happy, and then I'll tell you what's the next step. I'll see you guys next time.